HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. You're listening to the Heritage Radio. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and today we are going to take a little trip to Australia. We're going to be talking about Australian lamb with David Peach. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. So I, I'm excited to, to 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 learn a little bit more about um, what makes an Australian lamb an Australian lamb. So maybe maybe we should maybe we should start there. Is it a, a particular breed or growing protocol, or is it just the fact that it's coming to us from Australia? Uh, Australian lamb's got a rich history uh, in our country. It's actually uh, something that started when the the British first settled our country. They brought some sheep along with them. So over the years, um, you know, we've become very strong lamb producers and lamb eaters. And in the last 30 years, we've started to reach out to the rest of the world and export uh, a lot of our products. So we export to over 100 countries now. So it's a significant uh, farm industry. So if I'm a producer of livestock in Australia, um, how do how do is it like everything comes under one big type of cooperative system to be marketed and like shipped to the U.S. or can you break it down for me a little bit how it works from the logistic end? Uh, well, there's about forty thousand uh, lamb producers in Australia. They're mostly family operations, uh, but then there's another a number of processing facilities uh, that they sell their lambs to, and they're the ones who typically. Uh, put the product together for export to countries such as the United States. And is the lamb that's being exported to the U.S. Um, similar to the lamb that you're exporting to other parts of the, the country or, I'm mean, sorry, other parts of the world? Or does the American consumer um, look for or want something in particular? 
It, it's fairly similar. It doesn't really depend on breed. What we've learnt over the years is that it's more around the conditions that the animal was grown uh, and how it was cared for and produced that, that ends up getting uh, good-tasting lamb. So it's fairly similar what we send to the United States as to other countries, although the United States customer likes, uh, you know, likes a large rib chop, so you'll tend to see that they'll be from larger animals than perhaps some of our other countries that we export to. And that's one of the things I think is interesting about kind of lamb consumption. I mean, it's quite low in the U.S. compared to Australia, isn't that right? Absolutely. You guys, uh, you're missing out compared to other countries. <laughs> it's, uh, we, eat, we eat about 20 times the amount of lamb in, in our country than what uh, people in the U.S. do. So um, for a whole bunch of uh, reasons, it's not the popular meat that perhaps it is in other countries, and certainly you've got a lot of uh, other options to choose from, but... I guess what we're trying to do, together with, uh, with US uh, producers and New Zealand producers as well, to, to try and get lamb to um, stand out a little bit more and to get more people to give it a try. Now, is that, is that 20 times the rate just because Australians are super big meat eaters? Or, I mean, I'm assuming you're not eating 20 times the meat that we're eating overall. Just the mix no, is a little the, different. It, it's just a different mix. We eat uh, possibly the same, maybe a little less meat. Uh, than your average uh, U.S. consumer, but we've got a different mix. We're substantially more uh, lamb and probably a little less uh, pork and, uh, and turkey and some of those other meats. And looking kind of across the country, is there a particular region um, that, that lamb does well in or are, are, it, does the kind of supply move from different parts of the country so that you have lamb year-round? I mean, what's the kind of geographical span of the lamb production? It, it is typically produced in the southern half of the country, which has a more temperate uh, climate. The north of the country is more tropical. And I guess we still do manage to produce it uh, year-round. Uh, producers have gotten very skilled at being able to ensure that there's enough feed available uh, to produce lamb right through the, the course of the year. So it, it doesn't become just this seasonal product that's eaten perhaps once or twice a year, but it's available um, to purchase at any time during the year. So I want to go back to that question of breeds, because you said there's not a, a much of a demand in the U.S. for something that is breed-specific, and I know that, you know, lambs are, are raised for their milk, they're raised for their meat, they're raised for their fiber. Um, kind of traditionally in Australia, is there a particular breed that does well there? Are you known for a particular breed or crossbreed? Certainly when the country started, we were very much a wool-focused industry, so merinos uh, were, our, were our breed, our main breed. There's still uh, a number of, of merinos there, but we've typically now started to use uh, British meat breeds and even breeds from South Africa, such as Adorpa, which South Africa has a very similar climate uh, to Australia, so they've adapted very well. And really, it's the mix of those breeds, some of which are also here in the United States, that, that go towards producing the right product. So if I'm a farmer looking to kind of get into the Australian lamb business, uh, where would you recommend I start? Um, probably start by having a parent who's already in there, to, to be honest, because it's, it can be very difficult to start in the industry because of the cost of land and, and these sorts of things. Um, whilst people really love producing lamb, it's, 
it's certainly not the most profitable thing in the world. It can be quite challenging with seasonal conditions and prices, but um, certainly we've seen people become very committed and professional to to what they do to raise a pasture-raised product in Australia, and they're really proud that they get to send it around the world to, to people to eat. And so you said the, those are like magic words, pasture raise. Is that part of the, the protocol? Uh, it's certainly, it, it's the majority of what we produced. We, we have lands that um, can grow grass, but it's not really suitable, a lot of the land ra- uh, where we raise livestock for grain production. So we don't tend to, to grain feed uh, lambs. We may supplementary feed them uh, if, if it gets very dry, but generally, they're all raised on, on pasture, which, um, you know, is what produces that sort of mild, sweet flavour that I guess uh, we like to think uh, our lamb's famous for. I know. Here we, I mean, here we, you hear a lot more, I think, about grass-fed beef and the comparisons between grain-fed beef and grass-fed beef. And if we were looking at lamb, I mean, can we make the same assumptions for grain to grass-fed that we would make for beef in that it, it's going to be leaner or have a more vegetal, vegetal flavor? Have you looked at kind of the nutritional or flavor profiles based on the two? Um, typically, it, it will be leaner, although when you really look at it, um individual pieces of meat, whether they're grass-fed or grain-fed, you know, there, there can be a, a variance in terms of the nutritional profile of it. And it really comes down to, to personal preference. Some people like the, uh, a grain-fed product. In the United States, you know, a lot of consumers are used to meat that's, that's produced um, with some grain feeding, um, whereas Australia, typically, we produce both lamb and beef uh, on a grass-fed diet. So a, a lot of it does come down to what people are are used to eating and what their personal preference would be. So if I'm, if I'm producing, I'm producing lamb, I'm, I'm raising it. Um, how do I know when it's time to, to bring it to slaughter? Um, like what are, can you give us some, some examples of what the, the growing or slaughter protocols are for your farmers? Sure. We have, uh, because we're a very consumer focused industry. I mean, you know, we have a lot of uh, lamb consumers in Australia, but also around the world, and we know what it is that that they're prepared to pay um, for in terms of quality. So that goes right through to the farmer in terms of the specifications that they have to meet. And if they don't meet those specifications, they can actually uh, lose a lot of money in terms of the price that they get for their product. So they're really targeting a certain weight range for the animal. Um, it, as a carcass, that would be somewhere between uh, sort of 45 to, to 65 pounds and, and certain fat uh, level as well because, you know, we want a lean product. We don't want something that's got excess fat. So if they can meet those requirements in terms of the weight and, and the level of fat on the product, well, that's when they get the most for their product. So it's a very good incentive for a producer to, to produce the right animal. Yeah, just kind of to, to be able to meet that criteria. So yeah. it's not an arrangement where, where, where you're essentially contracting out farmers. Um, they, uh, but I'm also assuming it's not like they can just show up to the slaughterhouse and you take whatever on the market. So can you, can you give, give us a little sense of like the system from the, from the producer's perspective, how, how it works for them and how they know kind of, you know, what to expect once they've, um, you know, they know the growing. You know, they they know the carcass profile that you're looking for. 
kind of where does it go from there? Is there like a minimum number of animals they need to produce? Is there is that over a period of time? I mean, can you can you give us a little sense about kind of operationally, like how someone enters into um, to working with the lamb for export? And, and I'm curious, is that does that relationship is it usually that's their primary outlet for the animals, or it's a supplement to other kind of farm-based sales or market or, or local retail sales? Sure. So some some lamb will be sold uh, through what we would call a salia, which is like an auction system where representatives of the uh, meat processors will come and bid on those animals that, that, that they want. But more and more we're seeing what we would call direct uh, to processor, which is where they'll enter into a contract that'll specify, and they'll do that typically one to two weeks before um, they think those animals will be ready. Uh, they will enter into a contract to deliver a certain number of animals, and on that contract will be the prices that they can expect to receive if their animal meets those uh, weight ranges and, and uh, other market specifications. Um, so typically, um, you know, it will depend on the, the region that they live in as to how far uh, those people will be away and whether they've got different processes who, who can compete for those animals. Um, as to where they'll sell them, but they're pretty loyal in terms of dealing with the same sorts of people each time because they know exactly how that relationship is going to work. It's going to work, yeah. And in just in general, as a sense, is um, you know, you feel like lamb production in Australia is on the increase or holding steady over the course of the last decade? Uh, very much on the increase um, because we have really shifted from producing more wool and therefore having certain breeds of sheep like the merino to produce wool to focusing more on on producing meat because that's that's more financially attractive to a sheep producer uh, at this time so we're seeing not so much more animals but just um, their their uh, genetics are improving their management is improving so that they can produce more meat from actually fewer animals we used to have 170 million sheep uh, in Australia some 30 years ago, and now we only had it, have 75 million, but we actually produce more lamb. So that gives you some indication as to, I guess, the efficiency that, that people have um, uh, have seen by, by really focusing on genetics and their management. Looking to make the transition from a fibre industry into a meat industry. And then, yeah, and, and then the, a refining of the genetics. Well, so, David, we are going to take just a, a brief break, and when we come back, we will continue this lamb discussion. So hang tight, folks. You're listening to The Farm Report with Aaron Fairbanks, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Lung by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network. Org. Stay tuned for more from the Farm Report. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. 
more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. All right, we are back. You've tuned into the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network, and we are on the line with David of the Australian Lamb Council. We're learning a little bit more about that country's approach to raising lamb. So, David, I have to ask this because I, I feel like I get asked it all the time. I, On some level, it's strange to me that we would be importing meat from halfway, well, from all the way around the world, really, um, and that it could essentially be show up here at a lower cost to consumers than, than some of the lamb that is raised uh, here in the Northeast or in different parts of the country. And, you know, I'm assuming that's, like, based on different kind of efficiencies with regards to production. Um, but I'm just curious. I know that you guys do a lot of work um, with the chef communities and retailers and, and just kind of how you respond to that um, growing demand for a more locally sourced product um, when obviously you know you're bringing in something that that is inherently kind of the antithesis of local not that that's our only criteria measure but um, just how we as consumers should be thinking about making that decision absolutely and and it's naturally something that that we do encounter because we are an export industry you know we send uh, over half of our product around the world so we've always been very uh, cognizant of that challenge and what that's led us to do is is just to be the most efficient and sustainable um, uh, producing country that we can be and I guess that's the point I would make is that um, local uh, is certainly you know something that uh, you see in the United States and other countries and I think that's great in the sense of wanting to support local uh, producers and the communities that they live in um, and I guess what we would say is that Local doesn't necessarily always make, mean sustainable. So we can be uh, very sustainable producers of lamb without necessarily being local. And a lot of that is to do with, as you said, um, the efficiencies. Uh, we have, I guess, large scale of production with many, many farming families uh, involved in the system with, with probably larger flocks than you see in other parts of the world. And with the nature of transportation uh, these days, it's become very, very sophisticated and efficient in terms of the shipping routes that, that tend to uh, take product around the world. And it's actually a very small fraction of, of the impact of, of producing that food. So absolutely, um, you know, local is something that, that's there and um, we recognise that. And I guess what we say is we're still a very sustainable uh, pasture-raised alternative in terms of our lamb production. Yeah, so I feel like, too, there's a, a tendency when folks hear that something is produced on a large scale or coming from far away that there's uh, kind, kind of an inherently something that, you know, is bad or to be distrusted about that type of production. But I feel like you would, you, you would argue the point um, that, I mean, essentially, that having just because the industry is large or f from a great distance, um, that you, there's other kind of factors at play there. And um, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense, like, of the average um, farm size there, and like uh, a little bit of a peek into the life of an Australian farm, uh, an Australian lamb farmer, and how it may be like similar or dissimilar from producers here in the states. Um, for sure. I mean, I guess. We're, we're a very large country. I mean, we're about the sixth largest country in land area in the world. So having said that, we have a very small and very um, spread out population. So 
what you'll see typically is that um, lambs will be raised on quite large properties that are just owned by one farming family. And, um, you know, some of those properties, dare I say it, you know, could even be the size of some of the small states in, say, the, the mid-Atlantic. So it's, it can be um, an incredible scale, but I guess it, it comes down to the nature of our grass-fed production is that we don't have that intensity of farming because a lot of the land is really only suitable for raising of livestock. You can't grow crops on it, and, and what the livestock have been able to very efficiently do is turn that, um, you know, turn that... Uh, land that's not really suitable for anything else into producing a food product. So in, in some ways it's, um, it, it's a bonus that we can actually produce food off, off land that in other, in other ways couldn't be used for food production. Yeah, I always just get like images of a little bit kind of like the wild, wild west. Just like large open swaths of land. Uh, I feel like the, the kind of joke I always hear here is like, oh, the Australians, they just have a giant piece of property. They put a huge fence around it and throw the lambs in there and then go and like fetch them as needed. Um, it's like, uh, there's, there's a little bit of that uh, image, <laughs> most, most certainly. And, um, but that's the nature. We're, we're a big country. It's very different. You've got everything from really rich um, farmland right through to deserts. It's not too dissimilar in some ways to the United States. It's, um, you've just got about uh, 320 million people and we've got about 20, so that's the main difference. <laughs> well, too, and if you're thinking, I mean, I, I, there's, I think, uh, to me, if I'm thinking about, you know, geographical efficiencies at a global scale, I, I do often wonder, you know, are there places that are suited towards certain types of production and then as a world should we be concentrating in growing things and then essentially coming to the table and trading? Is that more kind of efficient and secure or is it more efficient and secure to be, um, you know, investing in kind of small, diverse uh, economies at the regional level? Um, but ultimately, obviously, we are living in a global marketplace, so I, I have to assume that the balance might be somewhere in between the two. I think that's right. I mean, one of the, one of the things is we're still quite young in terms of understanding uh, global trade and, and, you know, certainly 30 years ago our lamb industry didn't export at all. We were very much focused just on producing for our local market and, um, you know, with that comes a real insecurity in terms of producers' uh, returns and profitability because, you know, when, when supply is low, if you've only got one market, that's fine, but if, if you have really good seasonal conditions and produce more lamb, well, then you, you have an oversupply of the market and the price drops. So, you know, one of the things about us becoming export-oriented was not just because we have a small population, but it, it enables much more consistency to our producers in terms of what they can expect for their hard work in, in producing lamb. So, you know, I think there's... Uh, nobody has the perfect understanding of how the global trade of food should work at this point, and... You know, there's exciting things happening and seasonality is, is keen too. You know, if, if we're getting a certain product from a market that's right in its season, just because we're around the other side of the world, it's actually still more efficient than if we're artificially producing it, say, uh, locally down the road. So, you know, so much we still need to learn about food production and its impact on sustainability. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really interesting. You know, in, on this program, we often are talking to much smaller scale producer so it's to me I'm always curious like getting a little bit of insight into how you know a national organization like yours kind of approaches the work um, so shifting gears a little bit um, 
And when we're talking about um, how the lamb is coming into the country, do you find, I mean, is the market, I'm assuming primarily for lamb that's been processed into pieces, it's not coming as a whole carcass, um, and that you're also having, you know, that, that kind of end of the servicing happening, uh, you know, on your side of the pond, so to speak? Some, some of it happens in Australia, but um, it, it depends on the end customer here. In the States, some uh, will take it as what we call a primal, which is a whole lamb rack or, or a whole piece. But um, there's also a lot of, uh, I guess, fabrication of the product into, into further pieces that's done here in the United States uh, and then packaged for uh, the retail or food service. Um, you know, it depends on the, the customer and what specification they, they want and also, I guess, the, the price point at which, you know, that they will sell that product at the end. So there's, there's a bit of both that happens. And is there like, I, I, I'm less familiar with lamb, is there like a grading system that, that applies for the meat kind of once it's gone through the slaughter process so that some of the, the cuts will be more well suited to a higher or a, a, a smaller amount of processing? How, can you tell us a little bit how the grading system works? Sure, certainly we, um, we like to think that, to be honest, Lamb being the product it is, it, it doesn't really need a lot of uh, grading or differentiation in, in, in the country. So, um, but what we do have is, is a very strict definition of what is a lamb and, and what isn't a lamb. Um, and in our country, that's done uh, through chronological age, through, through dentition. So when, uh, when a lamb uh, starts to show some of its teeth, well, then it, it no longer can be called a lamb. Uh, and it goes into a, a less priced market. So um, that, that has significant impact on the price that producers receive. So they're very uh, aware of that and, and make sure that uh, on most occasions what they're selling is actually lamb. And once it's been determined lamb, uh, to be honest, then there might be different uh, requirements in terms of the size of, of certain products, but you can pretty much uh, maintain that it's going to eat very consistently, very tender and... Um, you know, we don't tend to get a lot of complaints. No, that makes sense. You know, it's interesting, like, uh, so a lamb is a lamb is a lamb. So lamb is, it, it's a demarcation of time. Um, so when something is no longer a lamb, what is it? So it'll tend to be called uh, something like a hoggard or something like that, and it'll go into a generic category of sheep meat that, that you won't tend to see then uh, on retail shelves or, or in, um, you won't see that in restaurants. It'll go into uh, meat processing, into, you know, other products, um, processed goods, those sorts of things. So um, it's certainly, you know, you can see a discount of 50% of the, wow. the price of the animal. So there's a strong incentive there for, for a farmer to, to get as many classed as lamb as he can. So this is kind of a weird question, but... Is so then essentially that like post lamb market is that like that's a that's like a default that's like if something essentially in the lamb raising system has gone wrong that you would end up with non lamb and I mean does anyone raise specifically for that market or that's just kind of the overflow space? Um, to a degree, it's it's definitely um, an overflow. It can be a, um, a factor of genetics. So if you're a wool producer. You know, typically you're focused on producing wool, so the quality of the meat, you know, won't necessarily be as good from from the breed of your animal. So you'll tend to accept that, 
you know, that, that's going into a lower-priced market. There are some countries around the world uh, for whom uh, what we'd call mutton is, is actually still, a, you know, a valued product. And one of the things, again, that we, we are able to, to get is the flexibility of other markets around the world, you know, being prepared to pay more for, for that product. So you'll see some parts of China, uh, the Middle East and other regions where, you know, the fact that it's lamb or mutton is, is not as significant an issue because they've developed a taste for it over the years or, or a preference for it or their cooking styles suit it more. So, um, you know, that's where you'll see that product go rather than places such as our domestic market or over here to the U.S. Yeah, that makes sense. It's so interesting. Well, we're just about out of time, but I do, before we want to, before we go, I want to touch base a little bit about lamb eating. I feel like here in the States, you know, I see, you know, lamb chops on menus. Um, you see maybe chopped lamb sandwiches, but um, maybe you could give us some tips, some Australian tips on uh, ways that we might be thinking about enjoying more lamb in our diet, um, maybe in less conventional times of day or, or other preparations that we should be looking to? Yeah, certainly I, I noticed that Easter is a big time for lamb consumption here in the States, but, you know, it's something you can enjoy at any time of the year. And, and just this evening I'll definitely be sitting down to slow-cooked lamb shanks, which are becoming, you know, even more popular these days, which um, there's some really great recipes. And the beauty of, of lamb shanks is that, you know, even though they have become slightly more expensive, they're a much more affordable item than perhaps other cuts of lamb. So I'd encourage everyone, if you've got a slow cooker, to um, to give lamb shanks a go this winter. I'm always pro-shank. So um, final question, if if I'm out purchasing lamb, how do I know that my lamb is Australian lamb? So in the United States, all, all uh, fresh meat at, at retail has to be labelled with its country of origin. So... Um, certainly just looking at the label and it will tell you whether that lamb is uh, Australian or indeed if it comes from other countries and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that's there that people can, can see. Interesting. Greg, thanks so much for, for taking some time out to give us a little peek into the, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a life in the lamb producer of an Australian lamb producer. I really appreciate it and it was great to have you on. My pleasure, Aaron. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.